Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, I don't like missing church, and last week I was one of the first times I've missed church, aside from traveling overseas that I can think of, and so it was it was strange, but it was also kind of cool. I was lying on the couch, and I was able to watch on the screen, and it was good to see everybody, and it was good to hear the word. I was thankful that Matt was able to come and, and preach. I know it's good for his soul to come down here and, and be able to speak to you uh, like he used to do, just as much as it is good for my soul to go up there. But today we want to turn our attention again to the book of Acts, which we are going through verse by verse. And I want us to look at chapter 4, verses 13 to 37. So I'm going to read that, and then we will go from there. So in chapter 4, verse 13... It says, now as, they under, now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to go aside out of the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus." Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which they might punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God and with one accord and said, O Lord, it is thou who did make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, thy servant, did say, why did the nation, or why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The king of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur." 
And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of thy holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. May the Lord bless his word. The sermon today, as I deal with this passage, and it's a large passage, but it's a large passage because it's a story, it's a narrative, uh, is as I began to think it through and, and what, how, how am I going to approach it, I, it ultimately came down to perspective. Perspective is actually quite key in, in life, if you think about it. Um, children have, especially small ones, have a very limited, very self-centered perspective, if you are aware of how children function. And as a result of that, they tend to become very upset when you don't allow them to play with things like electrical outlets. When I was a police officer, I remember a situation where we had an armed robbery in progress that I was dispatched to, and it was at a liquor store, and it was the, the robber was there then, and as I rolled up onto the scene, the man exited the store with his weapon, and things got real, really quick. As I got out of the vehicle, I drew down on him. To my surprise, he actually gave up. And so I had him prone out on the pavement. So I've, I've got my weapon on him. I have a man who had a weapon. He's now lying face down on the pavement. I'm giving him orders in a very loud tone, and I've got, I'm waiting for my backup. During that time, I have a woman come up to me and inquire about directions to the local convenience store. I will not completely recount everything I said, but I was very clear that I didn't care about her, her desire for a convenience store directions or anything else. I said, do you not see this man I'm holding at gunpoint? And she said, well, that doesn't mean you have to be rude. That was when I realized civilians were idiots. I just could not wrap my head around that moment, though I had to wrap my head around that moment. She had a very different perspective than I did about what was going on at that very moment. And as a result, it resulted in her reaction as opposed to mine. We just watched the Kyle Rittenhouse trial finally come to its end, and finally the verdict has been handled. And again, if you're watching anything or listening, you're seeing all sorts of perspectives come out, right? You see all kinds of opinions about what was good, what was bad, is this the greatest thing or the worst thing. All of it has to do with one's perspective. And so what matters is that you have to understand the perspective. How you view a situation, how you view a concept affects how you will respond to that situation. So Maslow said that if the only tool you have is a hammer, then every problem becomes a nail. If we look at things with the wrong perspective, we will then make our decisions and our actions based upon that perspective. It doesn't really matter about the facts. The reality is, with such as the trial, 
the facts were laid out, all sorts of things were there for everyone to watch, and yet you can still have radically different conclusions because of perspective. Well, that's what you actually have going on here in our passage today. You have two very different perspectives about the same situation. The exact same situation, no one's debating what happened, and yet two very different perspectives. What you have is a man, and this comes from our sermon a couple weeks ago. Uh, We have a man who, 40 years of age, lame from birth. He was always a beggar at the temple, and he was healed. No debate over that. Verse 14 makes it clear that even the enemies of Christ know that this man had been healed. So what are we going to do now with this fact? That's the question. What's our perspective about what's going on? How should it be viewed? That's what's actually happening now in this passage. So depending on their perspective, the people involved in this situation will be making decisions, just like you would, and they're going to act on those decisions. But the decisions are not the product of nothing. They didn't just become invented. They flow out of how hear that well, they flow out of how the situation of this man's healing is perceived. So their perceptions, not the fact that he was healed, their perceptions about that healing affect how they will react. So let's get a quick backdrop. The man healed was done, this healing was done in the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, If you're wise, you would probably want to circle or underline every time it talks about the name in this entire passage. When we talk about the name of Jesus Christ, we're not talking about just somehow a magic word, in the name of Jesus be healed, and we think somehow that invokes some kind of extra power. The name of Jesus simply speaks that we are coming and doing this in his authority in accordance to his will. Now, the, reaction, the resulting action of this healing of this lame man by many at the temple was simple amazement, which is not surprising. And it was in that time of amazement where people are gathering, seeing this man rise up. They had seen him every single day. They knew this man. This was just a fixture at the temple grounds. And now he's up and dancing and crying and praising God and full of joy. And so they gather around. What does Peter do? Peter doesn't talk about the healing. Peter talks about Jesus. And so he begins to preach to them that he, Jesus, was the one that was the promised one that every Israelite was supposedly waiting for, the Messiah, the one who is the Christ, the one who would make things right, the one that the Old Testament spoke about. He told them that this one was murdered by them but that God raised him from the dead. He then turned to them and called upon them to repent and return to God through Jesus Christ. As a result of all of this, though, then Peter and John find themselves arrested by the Sanhedrin. Remember, the Sanhedrin are the official religious leaders. They run the show. They have an entire temple police. They have incredible power and authority. And so last message, we saw how Peter responded to the Sanhedrin. He's now put up on trial. They're checking things out. They have questions. And he made certain things very clear. He said, 
that there was no other name that they would be able to proclaim. There was no other name for which they ought to suffer. There was no other name to believe, and there was no other name to find salvation. That's the outline of my last sermon. But what he was really doing there is he was simply drawing a line in the sand. He was saying, we will not go any further. We have nothing else that we can say to you. We are here because of the name of Jesus Christ. And that's where we find ourselves now today. Two very different perspectives over that same set of facts about the healing. A man is healed. A message has been preached. The people are responding So what do we do with it? And in it, we have a great lesson for each person here. When you have the right perspective and you know it, I will argue that you will have great comfort and boldness. When you have the right perspective and you know it, you will find great comfort and great boldness. And so with that, let's get into the text. We're going to start with the wrong perspective, because it's all about perspective. The consequences of having a wrong perspective, and we'll just use our story as the basis for it. In verses 14 to 22, we now have them gathered and they begin to talk. The leadership of those who shepherded and instructed the people of Israel showed a terrible response that flowed from a wrong perspective. Remember, these are the shepherds of Israel. These are the leaders. These are the ones who are the trained ones, the ones who ought to know, the ones who the people, the average person leans upon for direction and counsel and guidance and instruction. They are the, 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 supposed to be the godly ones, the mature ones, and here they are gathered in this official capacity, and all they show is incredibly bad thinking based on a wrong perspective. What's interesting in all of this is that there's actually some very unique parallels going on as well. Here in the early time of the church, we see many things occurring that also happened to the Lord Jesus. Now it's happening to the apostles and the early church, but it happened first to Jesus, which is not surprising because in Matthew chapter 10, verse 25, he says, it is enough for the disciple to become like his teacher. His instruction was, you're not going to become greater than me. What you will become is like me. And and as a result, you will be hated just like I'm hated. And so we ought not to be surprised when we see in the early part of Acts that they do begin to become hated. And we ought not to be surprised ourselves that as we grow in our Christian faith that there are people who will attack us and hate us. It's interesting, the Sanhedrin began to look a lot more carefully at Peter and John, right? And in verse 13, it's very clear that they looked at two men and they weren't real impressed with them. These were men who were uneducated, untrained. They were, they were your layman. They were your basic run-of-the-mill persons. And they're not too impressed with them. And now they're rethinking what has happened. How is it that these untrained, uneducated men can stand before us with such confidence. I mean, think about that. Picture yourself as just this very simple, common individual. You're not an American citizen. You don't have any sense of a constitutionally protected rights or anything like that. That's not what they were. They didn't have any of those things. 
And now all of a sudden they're drug into the temple. They're taken back into the back room where this council gathers. Nobody else gets to be their witness. And they lay into them. And these two men stood firm. And they spoke well. And they don't know what to do with them. But in the same way, Jesus amazed those who listened to him. The leaders and the people were constantly finding themselves amazed at how Jesus would teach, that he would teach with authority. And it's worthwhile that we remember that Jesus himself had no formal education. And so he was looked upon by the religious leaders in that same way of, you're an uneducated, untrained man. You speak, but where do you learn that? How did you gain that knowledge? In the same way, Jesus did things that simply defied rejection, though. Just like the Sanhedrin cannot reject the fact that this man was healed. They, the one thing they all agree on is this man used to be lame, and now he's healed completely. Well, in the same way, Jesus often did things that defied any explanation. In John chapter 9 is one of my favorite passages. It's a man who was born blind. And the, the general thinking, including by the disciples, was who sinned? his parents or him. The only thing they could figure out is that this man had been born blind because of either his sin or his parents' sin, but that's why. And so in some way, it's sort of like karma, right? It's like they they deserve this. And Jesus said, none of that. It's so that my Father in heaven would be glorified. Now, if you're the blind man hearing that, that probably didn't encourage you a lot because your whole life you've been blind, and that means you're going to suffer. And, and, and the blind man's got good ears, and he can hear people whispering about whether he was the guilty one or his parents. He probably wonders the same thing. And now he hears about this Jesus, and Jesus says, no, it's so that the, my Father in heaven will be glorified. But then he heals him. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders are just fit to be tied about this miracle, and they drag all of these individuals in and begin to try them and question them. And one of them is the blind man. And they keep pushing him and pushing him. And he's like, look, I don't know. Go ask him. All I know is I was blind and now I see. The Pharisees were not debating whether the man was healed. They just didn't know what to do with it. Because if they accepted that it was Jesus who was doing it, then they, that would lead them down a the path that they weren't willing to go. In the same way, a man is healed, and the Sanhedrin don't know what to do with these apostles. Now look at the end of verse 13 with me, where it says, they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. They see that these men had been with Jesus, but it's in the past tense. But that's not the real reality, is it? The reality is is that Jesus was not just in the past. He was in the presence. In fact, Jesus was with these men now, and he was speaking to them or through them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all the leaders can see is they only see that they used to be with Jesus. Jesus is gone. They have no idea where he's at. They don't want to accept that he rose from the dead, and they certainly weren't there when he ascended into heaven. All they know is he's not there, but now we have these obnoxious apostles 
showing up and telling everybody about the name of Jesus, and they look at it as a past event. Why can't we just let this fade away? But what they don't understand is that Jesus is, in fact, present. And so what has happened is that they're right back to where they started, where Jesus was their problem, then they kill him, and now we, they're right back with the same problem again. People won't stop talking about Jesus, but instead of it just being Jesus, now there's 12 of them. And more than the 12, now you got thousands who are now claiming to believe in this name, the name of Jesus, and everybody's talking about Jesus again, and they're frustrated. And so they tried silencing Jesus by killing him, but he rises from the dead, and now he has these men speaking about him, and they're trying to figure out how do we control this situation. All of that's perspective. So some reactions. Let me give you quickly several reactions I found in the passage that I think reflect that they had this wrong perspective. In verse 14, they'd be quiet. They, they stay quiet. So seeing that the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. What are they going to say? No, he wasn't. No, he's standing right there. What's sad, though, is that they don't rejoice. You'd like that, wouldn't you? They'd been walking past this suffering man his whole life. Forty years they'd been walking by, rejecting him, ignoring him, looking down upon him, making sure that everyone sees when they give him a few coins so that they can look all godly, but no compassion. Now he's there in their midst, fully healed. No rejoicing. No desire to learn. Wouldn't it have been amazing if they pulled the two men, John and Peter, aside and said, teach us. We don't know what's going on. But they don't. They just stay quiet. They've already rejected Jesus. And so these men are now, heal these men are now healing in the name of Jesus. They're speaking on behalf of Jesus. And they have no idea what they should say. When you had the wrong perspective, you tend to just shut up because you're not sure how you can say something without opening a can of worms, so to speak. Second, in verses 15 to 16, they begin then to do damage control. So then they had ordered them to go aside out of the council, and they began to confer. So now John and Peter are out of the room, and now it's just a council. And they're like, what are we going to do? Now they're beginning to plan. They're creating their plan, and they're going to execute it. But they, now they're trying to control the damage. They have no way to give an alternate explanation to the healing. I mean, the guy's healed, so they stay quiet. Then they get the guys out of the room, and then they begin their plottings. Now, their response could have been belief. It could have been, wow, this is amazing. But that's not what they're doing. They're trying to control the damage. At the same time, I might add that there's a good chance that at least one of them was converted in this time, that one became a Christian. And the reason that uh, we believe so, but we can't, we can't know for certain, but we, we, we believe so, is who told Luke this story? Think about that. Luke wrote the book of Acts, Luke is going around gathering all of this information. He's writing it all down, right? But nobody was in that meeting. He kicked out all the believers. 
John wasn't there. Peter wasn't there. The man healed wasn't there. It's just the council. And somebody in the council told Luke what they said. And I just don't, I have a hard time believing that a council member who didn't believe in Jesus would tell them these words because it would make them look pretty darn bad, right? And so it's very possible that at least one had come to faith. And, and the question is, it could have been Nicodemus or it could have been Gamaliel. We don't know, but it's an intriguing little point. But what you do see here is how the love of power and reputation will corrupt thinking. They know there's a miracle, but from their perspective, it's not a good thing. It represents a threat, a threat to the status quo. So they seek to prevent the people of Israel from knowing and hearing. That's what they want to do is we don't need this getting out. How do we control it? The third thing that a wrong perspective does is in verses 18 and 21 is they begin to use threats. And so in verse 18, they laid their hands on the apostles and they put them in a public jail. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm in uh, chapter five. I'm getting ahead of myself, actually. Um, and when they had some of them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all. Here's that phrase again, in the name of Jesus. In verse 21, they had threatened them further, then they let them go. So they're just trying to bully them right now. Now, they're going to turn up the heat, and they're going to put them in jail in chapter 5, and by chapter 7, they're killing them. But right now, they're setting the stage. They're, they're politicians. They know the game. They know how to play the game. They're all, all of this is just a, a game to them that, because they're the ones in power. And so what they're doing is they're threatening them they have to make them stop talking, though. That's what they want. Stop talking about Jesus. Stop proclaiming that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Stop talking about us being murderers. And stop talking about him being raised from the dead. Stop. And so by ordering them that in an official way, they're actually doing that so that the next time they start talking about it, they can use that against them and arrest them. And that's what they'll do in chapter 5, verse 28. But again, note well that the key concern for them is that they were t- teaching in the name of Jesus. It's not anything to do with Peter, nor John, or really even the man being healed. The issue for them is that you keep talking about this Jesus, and we don't want you talking about him. You want to heal people? Fine, go heal people. But don't heal them in the name of Jesus. You want to talk to people? Talk, but don't tell them about the name of Jesus. Don't call them to repent. And after they talk tough, they release them. So that's, that's where a wrong perspective, these are some things that we see worked out. With that, let's turn our, our mind to the right perspective and the power that comes with having a right perspective. The problem for the Sanhedrin is that they were dealing with two men who knew the truth. Have you ever been in that situation where you know you're right? You know you're right. You're not thinking you're right. You're not hoping you're right. You know you're right. Have you ever been in that and then get called into question? There is something very, very powerful when a person knows he's right. And they're like, no. I know what I saw. I know what I heard. 
And that's what's going on here is their real problem for the Sanhedrin is that they're not dealing with cheats. They're not dealing with people who are actually trying to manipulate the people for their own power. They're dealing with two men who know the truth. Remember, Peter and John walked with Jesus literally for three years. They saw him. They saw him do all the things that he did. They have seen so many demons cast out, so many people healed. They have listened to him preach, speak, instruct, just talk and pray for three years. They know Jesus. They watched him go into his trial. They watched the crucifixion. They watched the death. But they also saw him risen from the dead. Not only did they see him risen from the dead, but for 40 days he taught them. They stood there while he ascended into heaven with the promise he's coming again. They experienced the power of the coming of the Holy Spirit like it was always promised. So they may not be educated by man's standards, but they know. They know what is true. Truth will always bring confidence. Truth always frees you from the mental games that you get yourself locked up into where you're trying to remember how you last lied. Truth gives you a clear conscience. No matter what comes, you know what was true. You know you're right. And you know what is right. So with that, let's look now at the reactions that come from having a right perspective. In verses 19 to 20, you see the confidence. I really don't have the ability to impress upon you how intimidating this situation is. The best I can do do for most of you, maybe, is that if you're just simply working, well, I'll try a few different ways and see if they work. I just want you to get your head around how imposing and intimidating this gathering is to these people, to Peter and John. What do you feel like if I walk up to you and I have somewhat of a serious face and I say, I need to talk with you in my office, can we? I mean, John always just smiles and says, oh, okay. He's got a clear conscience. <laughs> or, <laughs> but it's really fun in a sick way for me to see your faces. That's why I usually then say you're not in trouble. But, but right, you, you, the pastor comes up, I need to talk with you. Can we go in? And you're already like, oh, man. That was, I already had a really bad day yesterday, and how'd he know about that? Have you ever been pulled over by a police officer? And you're like, Nah, they're just police officers. Until for some reason they're standing there and they're making you look over your shoulder and they're asking you very clipped questions and, and, and many people just start to feel far more uh, under duress than the police officer actually not doing anything. But just his sheer presence, the radio's going off, you see the bulletproof vest, you see all of that, and then you're like, ah, oh, that's just a cop. One simple little cop. Can you imagine being brought up and standing before the Senate and they're doing a full-blown investigation on you? Can you imagine the pressures that you're under? And here's two uneducated men, and what are they doing? They show nothing but confidence. Why? Because they have the right perspective. Notice how they respond in verses 19 and 20. 
Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. Sheer confidence. They actually say this in such a careful and clever way that they put the Sanhedrin in an untenable position. What they do is they frame their response in an either-or situation, and that's what confidence does. See, they could have said, look, maybe we're wrong, but the way we saw it, it was this. And, and you know, maybe we didn't understand exactly what's happened. We were talking about Jesus, and, 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 we, and the guy just was healed. Maybe we're wrong. You know, they're scared. They're trying to control things and get out of there alive. That's what having a wrong perspective will do. You're going to start weakening your message and playing the games and pretending because you don't want to stand firm. But once you know what you did and you know what's true, you become like them. You just say, look, you decide, do we do this or this? And they frame it that way, an either-or situation. You get to pick, Sanhedrin. Which one do we do? Do we listen to you? Or do we listen to God? You tell me. Well, that's an impossible question. If they say, well, listen to us, then by virtue of that, they're not listening to God. But if they say, listen to God, then that means go out and keep preaching about the name. And so they can't win either way. And this must have been very frustrating to the Sanhedrin since they looked at these men as uneducated and now they're tied up in a knot because they can't even give a good answer to these two uneducated men. You decide, who are we going to obey? Now, why do they say they were obeying God? Well, because it was Jesus who commanded them in places like Acts 1. You can go back there in Matthew 28. But in Acts 1.8, he says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost part of the earth. He, he, he's told them, all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. They knew this. And so they, they know we're not just pretending here. This is what God, meaning Jesus is God, because he's the one that commanded them to go do this. And so we have to obey him. And that kind of confidence must have been shocking to the Sanhedrin because they're very used to intimidating people. And they have two simple men who look at them and they're completely unimpressed with them. Beloved, when you have a right perspective about something like the gospel, about Jesus, it brings incredible confidence. Second, in verses 23 and 24, a right perspective brings prayer. It brings prayer. When they'd been released, they went to their own companions, reported. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. What do they do when they're finally released? They go back to their own. They go to their people. Now, this is not to the whole church. By this time, if you remember, 5,000 men heard that sermon by Peter and they believed. Prior to that, 3,000 believed 
on the day of Pentecost. And then God was adding to their numbers every day. The church already numbered in the thousands. So they're not gathering someplace. There's no place that all of those people could gather in one place. Most likely what they did was they went back to the other apostles and they reported. And so it was probably that first group in Acts chapter 1 that went and were waiting for the coming of the Spirit. The 12 apostles, or uh, the 11 apostles at that point, and, and Mary, actually a few Marys, and some other women. All of those were probably people that they went back to report to. They know they're right, but they don't necessarily know what they ought to do. Just because you're right and you're confident doesn't mean you know what the next step is. And so what do they do? They go and pray. Now, what's that got to do with a right perspective? It's this. When you don't think you're right, how often are you quick to pray? If, you're, if you know that you, if you don't really believe God's behind something, you're not going to go and pray to him about it. You're not going to commit it to him because, frankly, you're not even sure he's with you on this. But these guys knew they were doing what was right. They knew their perspective was, we're doing what God commanded us to do. We're simply obeying. We're speaking the name of Jesus. We're calling the nation to repent. We're telling them, believe in Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. I mean, we're doing all of that. So what what do we do? We don't know what next to do. So let's go pray because we know God is with us in this work. But because they knew that what they were saying and doing was right, it also caused to go to God in prayer because they're obeying him. They understood that their plans or their ideas are not, these are not their ideas is what I mean to say. These are not their plans. These are God's plans. They're just simply being obedient. So they go to God. Now you compare that to Sanhedrin. When they made the men leave the room, what did they do? Did they say, let's pray? Did they say, okay, they're gone as a council, let's just go to God in prayer. We don't know what to do with this man. We don't know what to do with this message. Can you imagine what would have maybe happened if the Sanhedrin had just humbly said, we should pray. God, we don't know what to do with these two men. They're uneducated. We don't know what's going on. But they, in the name of Jesus, healed. Give us wisdom. Man, cool things could have happened, but no. They just conspire among themselves. They don't want to pray. They have no interest in the things of God or the ways of God or the will of God. They have their own agenda. The apostles, on the other hand, are all about the agenda of God, and so they go to God in prayer. Thirdly, then, the right perspective will push you onward. Notice verse 31. When they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. So they finish this prayer. The Spirit fills them with power. This is that unique empowerment we've talked about many times. This is uh, something that happens and it goes away and it can happen. It may never happen in your lifetime, but it does in unique situations. And whenever it does, it moves the person to speak. It might be a prophecy, it might be a sermon, but there's always something done in great power and effectiveness. And so in that time, these men and women are filled with the Spirit, empowered, and what do they do? They immediately begin to proclaim or speak the word of God. 
For them, it's a confirmation that they understood rightly, that they did have the right perspective. They go and they pray and they're saying, here's our situation. And at the end of it, God answers it by this filling of the Spirit. Finally, comes this fourth point, and that is the right perspective brings forth a heart of generosity. Notice verse 32. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. We'll develop this the next time I preach. But I just want to bring this point out. When you have the right perspective about life, about God's work, about the gospel, when you have the right perspective, it invariably brings out a heart of generosity. And the reason it does is because God is a generous God. I have done this for a long enough time that I can think back over countless conversations. I'm sure my wife can too with different people who are discouraged or bitter, angry or hurt. I remember this one woman, she's now with the Lord, and she would call and she was just angry, angry with her husband, angry with her sisters. And, she, and, and, and her name was Peggy. And she would say, Pastor, you got it. And then she'd start launching. She'd yell at me. She'd yell, she was just mad. And I'd ask her, Peggy, have you slept lately? She's like, no, Pastor. I'm like, okay, how come? Well, you've got to understand. And she'd start telling me all the things. I'd say, okay, I understand. But they're a Christian, aren't they? Well, yeah, they are. And she'd say that grudgingly, right? Ah, he's going there again. I said, they are a Christian, right? Yeah. Remember when you were saved? Yeah. Still sin though, don't you? Yeah. God's been so kind to you, hasn't he? Yeah. Tell me how he's been kind to you. And she hated that question, I think, because it made her have to go beyond yes. And she would begin to talk to me about what God had done in her life. I said, that's right. Right, he's always been patient with you, hasn't he? Yeah, he has. Tell me a couple times that you've seen in the last few months where he showed you patience. And she tells you, pretty soon, you know what this woman's doing? She's just thanking God. She's just happy. It doesn't mean that the things around her aren't still swirling around and miserable, but, but her eyes just went back to what really mattered. God has been generous toward her. So kind, so patient, so willing to work within our weakness and in spite of our weakness. And so once you gain that perspective, once you understand how fully God has worked in your life and how greatly forgiven you are and how rich in his mercy with which he loved you, it's hard not to be generous. And that's what's happening here. Remember that there's many, many Jews there in Israel right now who had come from foreign lands for the day of Pentecost. 
They have no home. They have no place to stay. But they heard the gospel message, and now they're saved, and they're really reluctant to go back home right now. They're learning things. But they have no place to live, and they have no way to eat. And so what happens is they have needs. And the church rises up to that, and they're all being exceedingly generous. Why? Because they have the right perspective about things, that, that their house does not belong to them, no matter how much you may think otherwise, that their job is not simply so they enrich themselves, so their goods are not simply for them to enjoy all by themselves. Remember, having the right perspective in this context is to know that Jesus is Lord, right? And if he's Lord, what does that mean? Well, it means that everything he taught was true. Everything he taught is to be obeyed because he's my Lord. And it affects their pocketbook. And so they begin to open up. And by having this right perspective, they're all now being very generous and, and, and carefree with regarding their own goods. Why? Because they hope in a new age, not the age that they're living in. In other words, they took to heart the words of Christ that the apostles had taught them. And the apostles themselves took these to heart as they watched Jesus teach them. Words that said, you cannot serve God and money, right? You will love one and you'll hate the other. They actually believed those were true. I'm not sure many Americans believe they're true. But they did. Do you? What do you serve? What do you lose sleep over the fact that people are without Christ or your income is diminishing? What captures your heart? They grasp the idea that Jesus actually did say love their brother and not to withhold any good thing if it was in their power to meet that need. And they took it to heart because they had the right perspective. Jesus is Lord. And so these are various ways in this passage we see the value and the power of having the right perspective in life. Now, that perspective has to be built around the person and work of Jesus. Now, with that, let's go back and look at the prayer, and then we'll bring this all to a close, because I skipped over that, and I didn't do it uh, by accident. It was on purpose. I want us now, having all of that in there, let's look at the prayer they pray, because it's an amazing prayer. It shows in this prayer what they're thinking, how they interpret all of these events that are going on. In fact, if you ever want to know people well, who they are, two things that you need to pay attention. When they're having a bad day and how they pray. It's even better if you can hear them pray when they're having a bad day. But that's where you see their theology. That's where you see the real stuff, right? Not, not the pretend stuff that they're trying to tell you, not that fake little smile where they're, they got their hair all done up and they got the smile in a big, thick Bible and they're just saying, praise Jesus. It's when they get the word that there's cancer, that their job's ending, or something else is happening in their life that's life-changing. And now we see their heart. Well, this is true here. They show up. They go back to the other apostles. 
they recount what goes on, and now they begin to pray. And so it says that they lifted their voices to God with one accord. Actually, it's not voices. Uh, Every translation but the King James does it in the plural. But it's actually, they lift their voice, singular, here. And that's actually what's going on. There's one person praying, but it's done corporately. Remember my sermon on fellowship that even though one person might be preaching or one person is praying, all of us are to be engaged in that prayer and we can together lift that prayer to the Lord by agreeing, by agreeing with it. That's what the word amen means. So in the Armenian, I mean the Romanian church, it's really fun to be with them. When you're praying, after every sentence that you make a declaration or a request to God, everyone says, amen, 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 throughout it. It's very disconcerting the first time you do it because you don't know what you're supposed to do. But as it goes, you actually enjoy it because you realize it's not a passive moment for the church. The church is agreeing with what is being prayed, and that's what's happening here. They go back, they report, and then one of them begins to pray, and the rest of the people there are in agreement with what is being prayed. The very first thing they do is affirm strongly God's sovereignty. Why and how they affirm it through Nehemiah 9.6. That's the very first thing they actually quote. So it's a very scripture-infused prayer. He said, O Lord, it is you who did make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now the word Lord here is not the one that you and I think of. Not the Greek word kurios, it's the word despotes. Um, we get the word despot, which has a negative meaning in our language. But it is simply a term that speaks of sovereignty. They, they, that God is the sovereign one over all things. And they, they pull out this statement about God as creator. And the reason they do that is because the Bible does it. <coughs> Excuse me. When you make God the creator and you affirm that he is the creator, then everything else is what? It's the creation. Everything else is less. God stands outside of creation. That's why you'll see in the Bible, in fact, as we enter into our new year and you start reading the Bible again, some of you might want to try this. It might be fun for you. Uh, Go buy a very inexpensive version of the Bible, one of those mass market ones. You can get them for like $5. Have a highlighter and write on the inside of the cover, God as creator. And as you read through the Bible that next year, highlight only every passage that talks about God as creator. You'll be shocked. You'll be shocked at how much of it goes back to that. And it's because over and over again, that asserts his sovereignty over all things. And that's what they're doing here. They show their perspective on how things operate. So they're, they're not like, God, what happened? What's going on? How do I get out of this? Rescue us, Father. Oh, we're in trouble. Oh, Lord, don't do this. Don't let us happen. No, they're at peace. This prayer is a peace-filled prayer because they know God is sovereign. And so they go to him. Nothing is outside his, his will. They also in here see, show a certainty that there is going to be opposition and resistance. It never ceases to amaze me when people are confused by why they're having suffering in their life as a Christian. I'm like, he promises it. 
And yet we keep not believing he's true to his word. So in verses 25 to 28, he begins to quote from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a very specific psalm, especially for a Jew, where it talks about God and his anointed. Well, another translation of anointed would be God and his Christ. And it's a song, a psalm that, that is speaking of the fact that God and, and the Messiah shall reign over all. And that all of the nations, the Gentiles, those who are not Jews, are going to be enraged by this. And they see that God is preventing them from doing things. And they want to shake off God's bindings or his fetters. But what makes this very sad is that as they're praying this and they're quoting Psalm 2, who are the Gentiles who are upset? It's not the Gentiles, it's the Jews. It's the Sanhedrin. And now they have become like the Gentiles. They have become like the unbelievers. They don't want to come under the rule and the authority of God and his Messiah. So grasp what they're saying in this scripture-infused prayer. They realize that these events are not against them. It's not that the Sanhedrin are actually angry with them. They're angry with God. What they're saying is, in the name of Jesus, believe, repent, return, be saved. And the people are enraged by it. Right now, it's just the leaders, and they're enraged by that, and they say no. But it's not against Peter and John, and it won't be against you, beloved. When you share the gospel to somebody, it's not you that is the focus, even though it feels like it. They're angry with the God that you proclaim. but they had the right perspective. They understand that it's really against Jesus that everyone's upset. And that gives them the right perspective and so they can interpret the things happening rightly. But notice verses 27 and 8. They understand that these are not accidents. What happened is not accident. They weren't accidentally arrested. If they had just said things better, that wouldn't have happened. Notice a very strong wording in verses 27 and 8. He said, truly in this city, this is their prayer. There were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you did anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And then verse 28, what's it say? To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Wrap your head around that. Why did Jesus die? Why did any of this happen? It all happened because God had predestined it to occur. Now, if that's true, what are they thinking about their arrest? They're saying God had predestined this. Some of you right now, whether you know it or not, this, is, this can create a lot of discomfort perhaps in you. Beloved, nothing happens apart from God's will. His sovereign will is always worked out to its perfect sense. He doesn't ask you to fret over it or dwell on it. He just simply asks you to obey. Obey what you're called to do. God will let things unfold. You might preach a sermon or tell somebody and they'll come to faith and it'll be a glorious thing. You're like, thank you. Or you may tell them about Jesus and they'll hate you forever and you're kicked out of the family gatherings for the rest of your life. 
Praise God. Anyhow, it doesn't matter. Those things are in the hands of the Lord, however he has predestined it to occur. But that does not also make them become fatalists, where they just sit by and say, well, then God's going to do what he's going to do, so I'll just sit here. If God is supreme and if God is sovereign, then you have the right perspective of God, and it moves you to go to prayer. And so that's what they did, is they pray. And so in 28 and, uh, and 29 and 30, they say, now, Lord, now they're going to make their request. Up to now, it's just they're, they're speaking observations about who God is and what's going on. Now they ask the Lord. Now, Lord, take note of their threats. If God is purposing everything according to his own will, then they, then they can go to the Lord and say, notice their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. So they know it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. We need confidence. We ask you, give it to us. And while you do extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus So not only do they not ask for deliverance, they just are asking for boldness to continue because they know they're sinners and they know they'll wander, but they also then ask that God would continue to do these miracles through them. Again, these are the apostles who are doing all of these different miracles. Continue to do these things through us as we preach your word. So they want to be found faithful. So let's tie all of this up. Beloved, all of us have multiple opportunities in our individual lives to make decisions, and we all do them, right? And, and all of us have made decisions, and some of those decisions have resulted in a lot of groans and sighing in your life. You wish you could go back in time, right? You wish you could do it differently, but you didn't, and it's done. Later on, you watch the years go by and everything unravels and you're left in your older years with much that you moan and groan over. Or perhaps you made decisions early on or at some point in your life that honored the Lord and and by having that right perspective, you just set into motion things that you never dreamed possible. Where you were raised by two unbelieving parents to be an unbeliever. And they did an excellent job to teach you that. And yet God in his mercy saved you. And he saved your wife. And together you looked at each other and you said, you know what? He saved us. And he didn't save us by accident. He saved us with a purpose. Let's serve the Lord with all of our heart. And you set into motion things with your little ones that, you, that God gives you. And you raise them in the faith, Right? Right. Why? Because you have the right perspective. Now you're raising your children in the faith and you're calling them to believe and you're showing them the way and you model what life looks like under the hand of God. And then they grow up and they move out and they fall in love and they marry a godly man or a godly woman because they have become believers and they have that right perspective. And then they start having little grandbabies. And if you live long enough, you're starting to watch how God has changed things where you were heading toward hell as fast as you could and God in his rich mercy changes that. It does require in so often those the right perspective. You have to have a right perspective that then motivates you to do things differently. It's all about perspective. We could change the wording a bit and say it's all about what you believe. What do you believe is true? You come here every week, why? 
Why do you show up here? Why do you bring your Bible? Why do you pray? Why do you go home and, and pray over your meal? Why do you tell people about Jesus or not tell them about Jesus? Why do you tell your children or not tell them? What motivates you? What is your perspective? That's all I'm asking you to think about. These men had the right perspective, and they were in trouble for having the right perspective, and they stood firm. Two groups of people, one acted out of rebellion and unbelief, right? And the other, the apostles, had the right perspective. They believed in Jesus, and they acted in light of that with boldness and joy. And so instead of complaining, they rejoiced. Instead of retreating, they kept pressing forward. Instead of grasping, they gave, and they gave generously. Why? Because if Jesus is Lord, beloved, it means something. I'm, I'm just, I got nothing else to tell you. If Jesus is Lord, it has to mean something. If he is their hope for deliverance and forgiveness, then they can't lose. And I will tell you the same. If Jesus is your hope for salvation and forgiveness and life, what can man do? What's the worst that's going to happen? For some of you, you are hearing and you're rejecting Jesus even as I talk. You're considering the cost and from your perspective, you're like the Gentiles of Psalm 2. You see that coming to faith in Jesus Christ is nothing but binding, handcuffing, restriction. That if you come to Jesus, you lose. You lose your friends, your reputation, whatever it is that you so desperately want. But Jesus is not life to you. He is death. But for many of you, Jesus is Lord, is he not? And for you, I say, how does the perspective, that perspective of Jesus is Lord affect you? What are the decisions that you're making even today? How do they reflect that perspective? That's what I want you to talk about in your groups. Just, just talk about it. Turn it into prayer. Why do we gather as a church and why do we gather in small gatherings our whole purpose is to remember Jesus is Lord. Because when we're alone, we start to listen to the lies and the whispers and everything else. But then when we gather again and we sing those songs and remember them in the Lord's Supper and we hear it in prayer and then we listen to it in preaching, we're all reminded Jesus is Lord. And you go back home and you enter into the battle all over again. We have a different home, beloved, and we have a different hope. And I pray that as you think through what is your perspective about how things are, you begin to ask, how do you reflect that perspective in your words and your deeds? Let's pray. So, Father, I ask that you would open our eyes to this, that we might consider our ways before you. We just sang a song, all our ways are known to you, and we sang it with great gusto. Father, now turn our hearts to believe those words. Know that we do not walk in privacy, but we walk under your gaze with your care and your love. 
your concern and your power and your strength, that you are eager to grant wisdom to those who have need and ask of you. Father, let us have a perspective that changes us, where we begin to realize that we are now shifting things in our life simply to reflect a God-honoring perspective. Open our eyes to that task. Straighten us. Let us encourage one another, even in the midst of perhaps discouragement, weakness. I ask in your son's name. Amen.